All right, we are looking at Exodus chapter 16, verse 1, all the way through a long passage to Exodus 17, verse 7. This is the passage where if you grew up in the church, this is where the Israelites received manna from heaven and quail at night and then water in the wilderness. Um, But before I read, it's a long passage, I'm going to read the passage to you because I want you to be aware of it. But before I do, let me um, kind of set the stage. Um, Marla and I are taking a watercolor class at the Museum of Fine Arts. And so um, last Monday, because I knew that I was doing this message on, um, on the Israelites, I, we walked through the Egyptian galleries. And on the left side here, um, that was actually carved during the time the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And that's at the Museum of Fine Arts, um, which is kind of cool that that we can actually see things that the Israelites would have seen in Moses' day. Even more dramatic is that obelisk on the right. Um, there's a city that would be now in the suburbs of Cairo called Heliopolis when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. The Israelites, weren't, did, they did not help build the pyramids, okay? They were there too late for that. But after the pyramids, after that time period, in what's called the New Kingdom, the Israelites almost surely helped build some of the temples in Heliopolis. Well, in Heliopolis, there were four obelisks like this. That's about four stories high. Um, They talked about um, Egyptian victories and, and kings transferring power to other kings. And there are four obelisks like that. One of them's been lost. One's in Paris. Um... One of them is in, still in, in Egypt, and that one is in Central Park in New York City. So if you go out behind the Metropolitan Museum of Art, just walk across a pathway, you can actually set eyes on an obelisk that Moses actually saw with his own eyes as well. Which is the point being, just like uh, Moses was a real person, The Israelites were real people who, just like us, had to figure out if they were going to trust God and if they were going to obey God. Even more significant than than that kind of neat illustration, today at the end of this service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are going to celebrate something that is foreshadowed 3,500 years ago in Exodus 16 and 17. We are going to partake of the Lord's Supper and the bread as the body of Christ, as the bread of heaven, that the Israelites 3,500 years ago started and had no idea how it was going to turn out. All right, so I need to read Exodus 16, verse 1 through 17. It's a lot of slides, so, um, so just try to, um, try to keep up. They set out from Elam... And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So from that date, we know that they have now been camping out for 45 days, okay? This is a month and a half since they left Egypt. The other thing is, we don't know how many people were were in the exodus, But we have three passages in the scriptures that tell us that the number of of men who are old enough to fight, over 20 years old, was over 600,000 men. So if we extrapolate from that and figure there would have been at least that many women and there would have been a lot of children as well, 
then our estimates of the number of people that are in this mass migration out of slavery through the wilderness, when they're moving around, our estimate is between 1.5 and 2.5 million people. That's how many people need to get fed in the wilderness and need to have water in the wilderness. That's how many people. So if you, if you think of living in Boston, there's about 687,000 people live in Boston proper. Double that or triple that. And think of all of them being for 45 days camping out in the wilderness. By now, their food supplies that they took from Egypt almost surely are running out. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, to Moses and Aaron, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Which, by the way, is a play, is the word manna. Manna is the question, what is it? What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, that's about two quarts. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer... Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. I don't know about you. When I read it, I think of 
of how skunk smells, you know, it curls your, your hair, no, the hairs in your nose, nose. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And now verse, or chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin, that 2, two to 2.5 million people, moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, back when he was um, doing the plagues with Pharaoh. Take with you the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So I want to look at this long passage, and I want to look at it and see what do we learn from the Israelites, because there are, some, there are important things that we learn from them, and then I want to do the more important thing and see what do we learn about God from Exodus 16 and 17. So, um, 
as I read through that, that whole episode, I don't know what it jumped out at you, but the first thing that jumped out at me is the grumbling of the people. Nine times in these verses, the people are grumbling against their leaders and against God. And the, I just think, how could they be so dumb? And then the next thing that jumps out is obviously the manna and the quail, miraculously supplied by God. And they still didn't obey God. God said, I'll give it to you, but they didn't trust him, so they tried to collect um, more than God said. And wouldn't it be, I mean, one, maybe it'd be a deterrent. Wouldn't it be interesting if every time we sinned, we stank? Because here's what happened. Everybody knew, every single tent that sinned in all of the two million people in the Exodus. Because every tent stank with their sin. And then we come to the miracle of the man on the sixth day. Whereas every other day it stank, but God is miraculously providing and trying to teach his people to honor the Sabbath. And miraculously that happens. And it doesn't rot and it doesn't stink. But still the people break God's commandments and break the Sabbath. And then after God miraculously provides the bread and the meat with the manna and the quail, the very next place they move, they don't have water, and they test God by saying, is God even here with us at all? How could they be so dense? So I think three things that we see with the people of Israel, and we need to be aware of them for ourselves as well. The first thing we learn from the people of Israel is do not grumble. Do not grumble. And so I did one of these bunny trail things that I do when I'm working on messages, and I just kind of looked into some of the research on complaining and grumbling, some of the contemporary research on complaining and grumbling. And hands down, it's a really bad idea. So um, evidently, we all can tell when other people are grumbling, but we underestimate how much we grumble and complain. Um, Minimum, they say, most people 15 times a day to 200 times a day we complain about stuff. Now, the literature says that we've got to have a distinction between complaints that are to fix something that's wrong, and that's legitimate, versus complaints that are just about mumbling and grumbling and being annoyed. And um, grumbling, it's... By the way, sorry about to pick on you. But some professions seem to have more grumbling than others. So specifically named were teachers. <laughs> okay, I found where the teachers are in the room. And nurses. All right. Evidently, this grumbling thing starts to pollute a culture of an organization and sometimes an entire vocation. And then we just watch people distracted from what they're supposed to do and what they would be most effective to do. So one guy, um, last month, he had this campaign called No Complaint February. And he said the first problem is people don't know how much they grumble, so he gave people um, uh, bracelets to put on their arm, and he said each time you, you find yourself grumbling, switch the bracelet from one arm to the other. And then when you grumble and complain, switch it back and switch it back and switch it back. And he said people were astounded how much they were just plain complaining about life. Um, grumbling, by the way, 
erodes the quality of our closest relationships. Even when we're not grumbling against our significant other, the negativity just erodes the relationship itself. Well, in Exodus 16 and 17, we actually learn that grumbling can be a sin. They thought they were grumbling against Moses, but who put Moses over them as their spiritual leader? So, next time you flip off somebody driving in a car around you, who made that driver? Next time you grumble about your boss, you might want to think who allowed your boss to be over you in the first place. And next time you grumble about some political leader, you might want to consider who allowed that person to be in that role. And in case we don't get it from the ancient Israelites, here are two scriptures from the New Testament. James chapter 5, verse 9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. Interesting. So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Beware, you're complaining and grumbling. Because God will hold us accountable for it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like stars in the universe. You want to know one way to shine as a Christian in our culture? Don't join in the grumbling and the murmuring and the complaining in any setting where God has placed you. Second thing we learn from the Israelites is do not disobey. Do not disobey. They were caught stink-handed when they disobeyed. Um, they thought that they knew better than God, so they figured that they would just kind of hedge their bets. Maybe God wasn't going to show up like he said, so they're going to save a little bit of extra. Somehow they didn't think that God's instructions for them were for their best good, which is exactly what we decide every time we choose to sin. Every time we sin, we're making a conscious decision that God doesn't have, must not, we don't believe that God has in mind our greatest good and our greatest joy and our greatest thriving. So we step outside of the boundaries to get something that we want. And the sad thing that we see with the people of Israel and we know in our own lives, we may get what we want, but we really don't want what we get when we break God's laws. This is the main point. By the way, this manna theme runs through scripture. So the apostle Paul talks about this episode in the, the Exodus with the people of Israel, and he has an extended commentary on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And his main point is this, do not disobey. And so let me read the, that scripture from you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers, he's talking about the people in the Exodus, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. These things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. 
Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. So we learn, do not disobey. And we'll come to a way to get there in just a moment. Third thing that we learned from the Israelites in Exodus 16 and 17 is do not break the Sabbath. Do not break the Sabbath. And I've talked about this with you in sermons. We've talked in small groups. I've talked one-on-one. Every Tuesday, um, the pastoral staff, when we get together, we actually um, confess to each other whether we broke the Sabbath that last week. And we don't just talk about whether we tried to keep the Sabbath, but we talk about the quality of our Sabbath time with the Lord. Because the Sabbath is one of the top ten commandments that God gives his people. It's right up there with do not worship false gods, do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery. But as I've talked to you before in sermons, why is it we think that this particular one, we can disobey and it's okay? Sabbath keeping is part of God's laws for God's people forever, which means that he intends it for us as well. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. This is in the Ten Commandments. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And then Exodus 31, verse 16. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. So some people say, well, the Sabbath, that's an Old Testament thing. We don't have to do it in the New Testament. But we don't say that about adultery. Oh, it's just an Old Testament thing, so we can do it in the New Testament age. Sabbath keeping was a gift that God gave to his people so that they would live differently than all the people around them. You always could tell the faithful followers of God because they were the ones who stopped. Stop striving, stop working, stop pushing, stop obsessing one day out of every seven. Because they knew that God was in control, they didn't have to be in control. And here's the problem. As Christians, we have assimilated into the dominant culture that says that we have to strive, that we have to, I just have too many things to do in my life. I'm too busy to obey God's commandments. And what that does is it erodes our witness to a watching world. Because our lives don't look any different than anybody else out there. And Sabbath is one way where there's a line in the sand where we say, my life is different. I don't think the day matters, but I think the rhythm does. And I think it's one day out of seven. So we learn from the ancient Israelites to not break the Sabbath. The reason that they could not break it is because they trusted God to take care of the world if they just obeyed what God commanded. So, That's what we learned from the Israelites in Exodus 16 and 17. But we've got to go on to the next part because it's more important that we learn from Exodus 16 and 17 from God even than that we learn 
from the Israelites. And two preeminent truths jump out of Exodus 16 and 17. And then we see them throughout the rest of Exodus. We see them throughout the scriptures. But they become very, very clear. Two truths about God in Exodus 16 and 17. The first one is this. God is always with us. God is always with us. Even when they were disobeying, even when they were doubting, even when they were asking the question, is God even with us? God still showed up in his glory to be with his people. And we see that throughout the scriptures. It is a fundamental truth about God that he will always be with his people. Doesn't matter what we face. There will be times when he will test us. There will be times when he will discipline us. But there will never be a time when he will abandon us. It is true of the character of God that he will always be with his people. And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 28. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. As you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all I have commanded you. And his last sentence before he ascends to heaven. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you realize what that means? For us as the people of God, but also for every single one of us individually, God will always, always, always be with us. So Hebrews chapter 13 says that God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, if the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do against me? The amazing thing about this, folks, we can live in our anxieties and in our fears and in our stresses. Or we can believe that our God is always with us. The second truth that we see about God in Exodus, Exodus 16 and 17, not only is God with us always, God will provide for us always. God always provides. And Exodus 16 and 17 is way more about God being with us and God providing for us than it is about the Israelites' disobedience and the Israelites' um, breaking of the Sabbath. Our God is always present, and our God will always provide. So Peter reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 1 that God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us according to his own goodness and who has given us his very great and precious, precious promises. God's power will provide everything you will ever need in your life because that's part of the character of God. Here's why it matters. We can try really, really hard not to grumble. We can try really, really hard not to disobey. We can try really hard not to break the Sabbath. Or we could take another tack on this. And we can have such faith that God is present and such faith that God will provide that we don't grumble because we're too full of praise because we see God all around us doing what he does in our lives. We don't disobey because we know how much God is committed to give us everything so that we will thrive and have great joy. We don't have to try really hard not to disobey. We just lean into the fact that God is committed to our greatest good. And we don't break the Sabbath 
because we have so much faith that God is in control so we don't have to be. A strong faith in the presence and provision of God enables us to praise instead of grumble, to obey instead of sin, to keep the Sabbath instead of breaking it. Now, I don't know what you're anxious about in your life. Um, Thursday night, Friday morning, uh, that was the, the, the windstorm that we had. And so um, about 3.15 in the morning, my lovely wife is putting on her coat and going outside. And I wasn't awake enough to know she was shuffling around. I wasn't awake enough to know what she, And so when she opened the door and I really, I, I was, what are you doing? <laughs> she says, I'm going outside because our garbage can is blowing in the street. <laughs> so she went and got the garbage can and put it in the front and then she went to sleep. <laughs> From 3.15 to at least 4.30, I was wide awake. And I wasn't awake. I can usually fall asleep. I wasn't awake because Marla moved around. I was awake because I was stressing over so many things in my life. I was stressing over, you know, finding a family pastor for our church. I was stressing over, would our justice retreat last weekend make any difference? Or would we just go back to what we've always been? Would we actually learn how to speak truth to power? Would we learn to advocate for justice? Or would it have just been a waste? I was stressing over finding leaders for our church for next year. I was stressing, I, mean, I just went from one thing, I was stressing over, Lord, am I loving your people well enough and calling your greatest out of them? I was stressing over, <laughs> our daughter gets married next month and in Italy, and we haven't booked our Airbnbs for you know, eight of the days that we're going to be there. I was stressing over finances, and, and, I was, and this was the day that I'd just done the deep dive into Exodus 16 and 17. <laughs> and the Lord whispered to me, you know, Bill, you can stay wide awake and live in your fears and your anxiety and your stress. Or you can choose to believe that I am with you and I will provide for you. And I said, yes. And Friday's my day off, so I can do this. Um, 9.30? I slept three hours longer than I ever sleep in my life because God gave me rest because I chose to walk in faith instead of in my fears. I don't know what you're stressing about. Your relationship status, your finances, your future, your grades, you know, your parents, something in some relationship. Maybe you're stressing about your marriage. This same episode, I told you this manna thing keeps getting popping up throughout the scriptures. It's in Psalm 95. It's also in Psalm 78. And God goes through and, and the psalmist writes about all the things that people did wrong in Exodus 16 and 17. And then he makes this comment in Psalm 78, verse 22. He says, they did not believe in God or in his saving power. God wants us to believe in him and in his saving power. And then we can sleep. Then we can let go. It doesn't mean that we become irresponsible, but it means that we no longer think that we have to control all of this thing. We can walk by faith instead of by fear. So when the inevitable stresses and anxieties come our way, when we're lonely, we can say, Father, thank you that you are present 
and that you provide. When we're worried about finances, Father, thank you that you are present and that you promise to always provide. When we're worried about our dating or worried about our marriage or worried about our children or worried about our career, we can say, thank you, Father, that we know that it is true of you, that you will always be present with me and you will always provide for me. So, this morning we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I'd like to encourage you to come to receive the Lord's Supper after you've had some time just saying, Lord, help me trust you. Increase my faith that you are present and that you will provide. So in John chapter 6, um, Jesus talks about Exodus 16 and 17. And it's fascinating what um, that, that dialogue that goes on with Jesus in John 6. And this isn't on the screen, so just listen to it. Um, then the people said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. So they said to Jesus, then what sign do you give that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus responded to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life for the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And after Jesus says that he's the manna from heaven, the bread, the exact same phrase that we saw in Exodus 16, the craziest thing happens and the people grumble about Jesus. So once again, we see those who refuse to have faith in God are bound to grumbling. Let me pray as we begin our time of meditation. Who knew that when you rescued the Israelites from slavery, that you would give pictures of Jesus Christ as the bread of heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us bread so that we will never hunger again. And for giving us your life so that we can be fully alive. We come to you in faith, believing that you are with us and you will provide for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.